Good morning. Hey, if we've not had a chance yet to meet, my name is David Hinkle, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of sharing from God's Word with you this morning. And uh, as a pastor here, I genuinely love being a part of this church. I love being a part of what God is doing, and I don't know how you feel right now, but it feels to me that God is doing something unique in our midst. There are some incredible ways that God is on the move, and one of those ways is how God is moving in the world and through our partnerships. And so as you know, earlier this year, we, we collected an offering actually at the end of last year to help fund uh, the scripture translation into a, a language for people who have never had the Bible. And the training is already underway with those translators, and this year, because of how God moved you in generosity, uh, there's a group of people that will be able to hear God's voice in their own heart language. Right now, our lead pastor, Joe Hishma, his wife, Cheryl, and uh, some others from our church, uh, they're in Indonesia, and they are there looking at um, uh, the world's largest trash dump. We have a ministry partner called Trash Mountain Project, and the largest dump in the world is found in Indonesia, and so they're taking a look at uh, what those conditions are. Joe, uh, this was Sunday. You thought we had early daylight savings or whatever going on. He's already preached his message. Look, it's, he's already done. And uh, so it's already been uh, Sunday there. And so uh, they're serving and building into um, another missionary family that's been one of our longest supported missionaries on the ground in Indonesia. And so God is doing some unique moving internationally as well as locally. Man, next week, Highcrest Campus begins. Yeah, yeah, you can say, yeah. So we're calling it the soft launch as uh, Easter will be the big kickoff, and uh, you'll hear more about that later on. But, uh, man, God is doing some stuff. And I just feel really privileged to be a part of it. God is writing his story and he has you and me in mind as he's writing it out. And that's why we're in this series called The Story of Us. We're looking at the Old Testament and going from Genesis to Jesus. And today we're going to enter in the final chapter of the Old Testament. A season of time where after God's people were sent away into exile, God is calling them back. And so as we make our way to the center point of Jesus, we're in a season that is known as recall. So what happened was, was that Israel, in their history, they cried out for a king, and God allowed them to have a king, and his name was Saul. And the kingdom went from Saul to David, and then to Solomon, and then after Solomon, the kingdom divided. And so the land of Israel became two completely separate nations, each with their own kingdom structure. And so it would be like Nebraska and Kansas, split in half. The northern area was called Israel. The southern area was called Judah. So the nation of Israel split into two completely different nations. The northern, the Nebraskans in this story. None of their kings had a heart for God. Pretty typical, right? And so what happened was, was that they got carried away into exile first by a nation called Assyria. 
The Assyrians came in from the north, and they were the first people group that they ran into, these Nebraskan Israelites, and they carried them off. And Judah, they kind of threw a party about that, because they split off from them. And the Kansans in this story weren't much better off. Their leadership had some righteous kings, but most of them turned their heart away from God. And the Babylonians came in, and they came and, and took the, uh, the people of Judah into exile as well. And at that point, there was, no, uh, there was no home for the people of God. They became exiles. And they were sent into captivity, and God raised up prophets to speak to them. And so as they went from Jerusalem to their places of captivity, namely Babylon, um, God had different prophets speak. And in these prophets, they would talk about the judgment of God against them, call them to repent and to turn, and then to share the promise that God would bring them home. And this is what we find in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. There's a famous text there, and I want to read uh, some of these verses with you. Verse 10, it says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So there's this promise that God has spoken through Jeremiah, and he says, I'm going I'm to bring you home. I'm going to call you back. And we're going to look at this this order of events as God was true to his word and he called his people back, but he did so in kind of waves. And so in the first, and with each wave of return, there was something specific that the people built. So we're going to look at the historical return of the people of God to the land and specifically to the city of Jerusalem. We're also going to look at what they built. And first, they built an altar. So a group of leaders led by a man named Jeshua and then Zerubbabel. You want to say Zerubbabel with me? Ready? Zerubbabel. Say that 10 times fast, right? Zerubbabel. Yeah, you're doing it. Man, that's awesome. Um, so this group of leaders were brought back to Jerusalem. And the very first thing that they did, we find in chapter 3 of Ezra, verses 2 through 3, which says this, Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. So they returned to Jerusalem, and this group of leaders, uh, what is the what is the feeling they have because of the people in the land? What does the text say? They were what? Scared, afraid, right? Intimidated. Because they, they lost their city. They've been in exile for a generation. They're coming back in, trepid. And they say, we, we got to build an altar. 
And so this group of small leaders, they, they piled stones and they began just confessing their own sin. And that's where it all started. Then God sends a second wave of leaders and, and people to return. And with a greater workforce, they're able to build the next structure, which was the temple. Now, this is significant because the temple always represented the place where God would dwell. It was the place of God's dwelling. The temple was a permanent structure of what the tabernacle was when the people left Egypt. When they were set free out of slavery, God told them to set up a special tent called a tabernacle where God would dwell by a spirit. The temple represented the place that once everything was set up, the spirit of God would come and dwell with his people. We have this account shared for us also in the book of Ezra in chapter 6, verses, starting in verse 14. It says this, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Uh, it's important to have this data because this shows that this is actual historical fact. This really happened. And then once they constructed the temple, we read this in verse 16. It says, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls. A bull. A hundred bulls. Have you guys seen a bull? This was some kind of celebration. This was some kind of a feast and sacrifice like we have never seen. I know there's some of you in here that have probably slaughtered a bull. But I don't know that you've slaughtered a hundred bulls and then... 200 rams, and then 400 lambs. (laughs) And then as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So as the people are brought back to the city, they first start with the altar, the place of sacrifice. Then they move to the temple and they construct the temple, the place where God dwells. And they set worship in its rightful order. And God wasn't done. He rose up another leader and another group to return. And the leader he rose up was Nehemiah because then after the temple was constructed, the city needed a wall built around it. And God put a burden on Nehemiah's heart. He was still back in Babylon. He was serving in the court of the king. Even while all this has happened, when the first wave came and they built the the altar, the place of sacrifice, and the next wave came and they built the temple of God, he was back in Babylon, serving in the king's court with a growing burden that the the city, this, this place that God had designed to be the place of reconciliation, was left unprotected. So we're told in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, Nehemiah has come back. They, they set about building the wall. And it says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, 
All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They construct a wall in 52 days, and it leaves the nations around them stunned, and they're in awe of what God has done. Now, let's go back two waves. When the group of leaders who first left captivity and they came in, what were they feeling? Fear. Because they looked around them and they thought the task around them, the threats around them were too great. And in humility, they built a simple altar and offered their hearts, confessed their sin to the Lord, and then God moved. They established his temple where he could dwell by his spirit, and then the wall was done in such a way that only God could be given the credit, and who then is in the place of fear? The nations. The very people that the people of God were afraid of. Those people stood in awe of the power of God. Now, the purpose of the city was to be a place of reconciliation. This goes back to God's promise, which began with Abraham. He said, I will bless you and I will make you into a great nation so that you will bless all the nations of the world. This is the order of the return, and we have the altar, the place of sacrifice, the temple, the place of God's dwelling, and the city, which is the place of reconciliation. So my question is, is what does this really have to do with us today? It's, it's interesting, it's good history, but is there a greater purpose to the order in which God had established his city and bringing his people back? And the answer is yes. But Jesus changed the story. When the people of God came out of captivity and back into the, to the land of Israel in the city of Jerusalem, God had an order in mind. Jesus ushered in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that is what Jesus taught about and called people into and how he demonstrated what the kingdom of God was like. And there is a way of entry into the kingdom of God. And I want to take us to a passage that really clarifies this. And so if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Hit 1 Corinthians and turn right. Hit Galatians and turn left. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus changed the story. And what was once a place of sacrifice in him has become a person. So first is Christ, the person of sacrifice. Let's read this passage found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In the Old Testament, there was a system of sacrifices. You guys have seen this as we've talked through this this story. It's like continually being in debt 
And the system of sacrifices was meeting the minimum balance to stay in a relationship with God, to keep under the blessing of God, to keep, in our language, the creditors satisfied, right? You're just paying against the minimum balance. And you had to continue to do that over and over. And Jesus reconciled the statement. His death was once and for all. He became not just a place of sacrifice, but the person of sacrifice. There's no more work left to be done to enter into God's kingdom. You don't have to take a bull and cut it open and have its blood run out as a symbol of your sin and the payment of your sin. Jesus bled and died for you. Died once and for all. He's the person of sacrifice. And if you place your faith and trust in him, this is what is provided for us. And it says in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus is the person of sacrifice. There's no place that you have to keep going to to be made right with God over and over and over It just takes someone to say in the same heart and spirit as those leaders and that when they they felt intimidated by the world around them, they made a sacrifice and they bowed their knee and they confessed their heart and their need for God. And the same happens when you come to the person of sacrifice. You realize that you cannot be the answer for your own sin. The way you have lived your life is not Working, It's not resulting in the peace that you search for and long for. And in humility, you know and understand the truth that God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you once and for all. And you are brought into God's kingdom and you find forgiveness and a way out of your sin when you say, I believe. I believe that what Jesus did was enough for me. He is God's son. He did die on the cross. And he did rise from the dead. That act of humility and belief brings you in to the kingdom of God. But more than that, God has a second wave that he has ushered in through Christ. And it's not a place. It's a people. After they built the altar, they built the temple. And now you are the temple of God. The church is the place where God dwells. There's the people where God dwells. It's not about an address. It's not about a building structure. It's about us together sharing in what God has provided for us. We are the people of God. We are the temple of God. We are where the Spirit dwells. In this passage, 
It says in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are the representation of God on the planet. By God's design, he is supposed to be made known by by who we are. In the temple, when it was built, when it was the physical place of God's dwelling, there were division walls. There was an outer court for the court of the Gentiles. People that weren't Jewish by, by their heritage. And they could only go so close. And then they had a wall. Then there was the court of the women, and they had a wall. And then there was the court of the men, and they had a wall. And then there was a place where the priests and the Pharisees, and they they could come close, but then there was the Holy of Holies where God was, and only one high priest once a year could even go into that place. And they put a rope around his ankle that if he did something wrong and offended God, he'd drop dead and they could pull that brother out. That's how the temple was established and what Christ entered in is he said, I have placed my spirit on my people. There is no division. There is no wall. There is no race, no color, no creed. There is no gender difference. All are my temple. This is said crystal clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you, a good, good father. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So we come in through the person of sacrifice. And when that is built up, we become part of the temple of God because we're God's people. And just like God's story in the Old Testament, he moved a group to a place of sacrifice, a place where he would dwell, and then a place that could be a a place of reconciliation. And Jesus turned it all into him being the person his bride, the church, the new temple, and then we have a call to reconciliation. Around here, we use a language called you and two, a phrase. We believe that at any given time in your life, there are two people who need Christ. It's true. God has already positioned you around two people that need the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. I know my two. They're kind of self-made. Prideful dudes. And I see such incredible potential of what, what God would do if they could just bow their knee to Christ. You have at least two people. They could be within your own family. They may be called your children your parents, or a sibling, or neighbors, or co-workers. We don't have to think all that long 
to go, who are two people I know that they need Jesus? Look at what this passage says in chapter 6, starting verse 1. It says, working together with him, us, the people of God, the temple of God, working together with the living God, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We receive God's grace in vain if we sit on our hands and do nothing with the hope and the eternal life that we've been given. If we don't share what we've been given, it's like receiving God's grace in vain because it's never supposed to just remain stagnant with his people. We're called into this work of reconciliation. God has offered salvation to the world and people don't know it. And we're the plan. God has said, I need you to carry this message out. Don't sit on your hands. He says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He says, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Paul is saying, it's go time. The race is on. This is the day of salvation. Now is the time. This is the time when God is on the move. We opened our service together. Thinking together about how God is doing only things that he can do. He is moving and working and calling us to be swept up in his work, to be faithful with the people that he has placed us right in the midst of, to love and serve them and to offer a way to the person of sacrifice that they may become the place or the people of God's dwelling and that they can become people of reconciliation. It comes with a price. And Paul doesn't pull any punches. And as we look at this next set of verses in 2 Corinthians 6, he's going to say this, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. He's going to describe, this is how we present ourselves. And there's going to be some important prepositions. And I can thank Miss Burden from seventh grade who made me memorize prepositions. (laughs) Of paying attention to the prepositions. So he's going to say, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by. This is what we will experience. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Welcome to the Christian life. It's going to cause endurance to to step into the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of people's lives to endure with them. And it may come at a very high cost for us. But again, verse 6, buy. And this is how what what should describe the people of God. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, buy, truthful speech, and the power of God. These are the characteristics that should describe the church. These are words that do not describe the world. But then the preposition changes and it says with. What has God given his people? And it says with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. In the right hand we hold the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And in the left hand we have what? The shield of what? 
What? Faith. The shield of faith. Because when we take ground for the kingdom of God, it will take holding fast to God's word and will have the shield of faith because Satan will throw his fiery darts to disrupt and to disunify his people. When God's people are united, God moves in a powerful way. And when God's people are divided, he waits until unity is found and then he moves powerfully. That's why unity matters. But we don't do this out of our own intelligence or our own strength. We have spiritual weapons for this battle. Verse 8, preposition change. Through honor and dishonor, slander and praise. That tells us that there's going to be times where, where, the, where the culture around us is for the church. And then there's times when the culture around us is against the church. In our national history, it's not that we were so much this deep Christian nation, although we were founded on Christian values, but there was a moral majority that was okay with Judeo-Christianity. The moral majority has left. It swung the other way. Against the things of God. Against the values of God. We should not be caught surprised. There are times where God's people will be revered and times when God's people are shunned. But we press through, we press on. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Because our identity is not wrapped up in our possessions or what we, or, or what we can attain, it's in who we are. So we press into this ministry of reconciliation because we are the people of God, because we have a person of sacrifice who's changed our lives. So let's boil this down to something practical. Because if we are called to to engage at least two people with the hope of Christ, how do we call them back to God? Well, let's take the word call and turn it into an acronym and an action plan. Because in each of these steps, when God's people do these, he moves in a unique way. And first of all, we care for them beyond posting on Facebook. Prayer hands. Man, social media has created a facade of connection. Nothing beats the church when God's people enter in to provide genuine care in simple ways. To just show up. Showing up in the hospital, funeral home, celebrating the birth of an infant, mourning with people, just showing up. God moves in a unique way and puts you in a position where perhaps their hearts might be the most vulnerable and the most receptive to the voice of God. Then you can ask to pray. Right then and there. 
Not with the well-intentioned offer of, hey, I'll be praying for you. But to just simply stop and say, hey, can I pray for you? You don't have to close your eyes and it won't be long. Father, I lift up my friend. May he know that you love him deeply and may you see him through this difficult time. In Jesus' name, amen. I have never had anyone to this point turn me down to pray with them, even if they didn't have a heart for God at all. But when God's people do simple acts of kindness, he moves. We care for them. We ask to pray right then and there. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. You're going to have that prompting rise up in you of, I should just ask to pray and do it right then and there. There have been times where I didn't even ask someone. I started praying. They kind of like, whoa. And then live your walk because they're watching us. Man, uh, there's such a deep skepticism, isn't there, in our culture. Uh, Young people have seen the flaws of institutions and things like that, and they, they can sniff out inauthenticity quicker than those of us north of 40. And the next generation is watching us, watching us how we handle ourselves, And really, the church should be the place of, of racial reconciliation and the place of, of uh, treating people with dignity and respect. It should be here. So you've got to live your walk. And that's constantly coming back to the person of sacrifice that when you blow it, it's what you did when, you, when we began in worship today and you confessed your heart. You come to Jesus and you say, I've sinned. Thank you for covering my sin. Thank you for being my person of sacrifice. Thank you for reminding me that I'm in this together and I can be led and worshiped by someone who's willing to say, I was a grump to my kids. Sometimes I think I have the best way and I'm gonna lay that down. And then you love like Jesus. Jesus had this balance of grace and truth. He was able to know every, he is able to know everything about us and love us anyway. He can call it in our lives And he can provide a way out because he's the person of sacrifice and we can love people like him. This is how you call people back to God. You care, you ask, you live, and you love. May God help us do that. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for this time together in your word. We thank you for the work of Jesus for us that is once and for all. We thank you that you have called us to be together as your people, protect our unity, and God, help us to reach in tangible ways the people that you have placed in our hearts, men and women and children whose hearts may be far from you. But Lord, perhaps by sharing the gospel and loving them well, they'll be brought in. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you a video story from one of the men in our church and how God met him at his time of need and changed him the rest of his life. My name is Brad Hutton. My story started about 63 years ago when I was born into a Christian family. and I was raised as a Christian. I was uh, baptized when I was seven or eight years old. Journeyed through life... uh, doing what I wanted to do. Uh, Later in life, when I let my successes and my uh, 
my desires get in the way of my faith. Didn't pay much attention to, to my religion or, or to God. In February 2016, that, that was all about to change. I started struggling with uh, uh, some weakness in my legs. I would uh, had a lot of pain and I actually started falling. And that led to about seven months of, uh, of uh, tests. They found an enlarged lymph node and they informed me I had Merkel cell carcinoma. I made the mistake of Googling uh, Merkel cell carcinoma and started reading about the disease and how it solved things like uh, dangerous, aggressive, uh, looked at the mortality charts. And that afternoon I sat on the porch and I was looking off into the pasture grass and, and just uh, admiring God's creation. And uh, I uh, was lamenting about how much I was going to miss it. And I was lamenting about how my wife was going to get along without me because she has MD. So I was tired and I went in to take a shower and all of a sudden I just lost it. I started crying. Uh, I, I've never cried like that before. I was, I was, it was from the bottom of my, my being and I was, I was uh, very alone. I, I probably never felt more alone in, in all my life. I just started crying out to God. I cried out to God to please uh, save me. Uh, and I told him that if, if he would save me, I would speak for him, but he would have to tell me what to say. And in that moment, I heard a voice in me that said I was going to be okay. And at that moment, I was no longer alone. I had this feeling of uh, peace. I don't even know how to describe it. He was with me. I had 34 doses of radiation. He was with me every day. Uh, he has never left my side since. Why I carry this Bible with me all the time is God. God has given me such an appetite to, to not just read His Word, but to understand it. He is driving me to, to uh, tell the story. He's driving me to tell people that you have to read the Word to understand the gift we've been given. I believe even though I was baptized early in my life that I didn't have a full understanding of who Christ really was. I truly believe that sitting there in that shower as the water water and my tears washed over me that, that he made known to me who he was, that he died for my sins, that he, he was there to comfort me. I truly do believe that his hand is what healed me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been through two scans and I'm cancer free. I'd like to give everybody a piece of what he gave me. <laughs> you know, just here, this is what it feels like.